Jackie. Number two, Derek Jeter. Number two. On September 25th, 2014, Derek Jeter played his last game at Yankee Stadium. And like seemingly everything about his 20-year career, it unfolded like a fairy tale. In the bottom of the ninth, with the game tied and the winning run on second, Jeter came up for his last ever at-bat in front of his fans. Well, the script is there. The last page is in Derek's hands. Make deals. Base hit to right field. Here comes Richardson. Here's the throw from Marquez. Richardson is safe. Derek Jeter ends his final game with a walk-off single. Derek Jeter, where fantasy becomes reality. Did you have any doubt? The storybook ending was capped off by a mob of not just current teammates, but former teammates from Jeter's past. Andy Pettit, Tino Martinez, Jorge Posada, Mariano Rivera. They were all there to celebrate with Derek, highlighting just how beloved he still was at the end of his long career. We all remember the respect hashtag and those Instagram filters and everything. Oh, yeah. And there was that famous gif of his little nephew tipping his cap and saluting Jeter. But where was A-Rod? Alex Rodriguez, who had played over a thousand games with Derek Jeter and who had been compared to Jeter since before he was even drafted, was nowhere to be seen. Where was he? Of course, in 2014, Alex was serving a one-year suspension for his role in the Biogenesis scandal, which we talked about in the last episode. So he was away from the team for all of Derek's final season. But where was he? What was A-Rod actually doing the year he was out of baseball? Well, according to a story that would appear in ESPN the magazine a few weeks later, written by J.R. Moringer, Alex was taking a marketing class at the University of Miami School of Business. That's what Rodriguez was doing while his former friend, rival, and longtime teammate was playing his last game as a Yankee. It was fitting in some ways that Derek Jeter would go out in a moment of glory without Alex around as a distraction. And it was fitting that Alex would spend his year away from the game focused on his other interest, his business career. Alex had launched A-Rod Corp. back in 2003 as sort of a natural consequence of his historic contract. He needed to do something with all that money, and A-Rod Corp. became the umbrella under which he made most of his investments. Obviously, it's not unusual for pro athletes to have a bunch of side hustles and companies they put their name on. But A-Rod stood out for his desire to be seen as a mogul, and the marketing class seemed like a very intentional, strategic step in that direction. And the Moringer article also mentions that he was hanging a lot with someone he found to be a valuable mentor, one Michael Milken. It's a little strange, really, because as we tried to highlight during the previous eight chapters of the A-Rod Chronicles, Alex's career had been defined by tensions with the ownership class. From the free agency boom of the 1990s, which Alex became the face of, to the analytical revolution, which made Alex its antagonist, to the steroid panic, which claimed a year of his career, A-Rod was always at the fulcrum of the push and pull between workers and capital. And yet, deep down, he always wanted to be an owner. A-Rod always seemed more comfortable around owners and executives, around the general culture of businessmen and founders and startups, no matter how scummy or how unethical they were. And it was clear that that was how he saw his post-playing identity. But more than his own comfort, Alex had learned 
after two tumultuous decades in the spotlight, that the best way to insulate yourself from the slings and arrows of public opinion was to enter the ownership class. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 9, Class Traitor. When Alex's suspension was up at the end of the 2014 season, there was some question of whether he would come back at all. After all, even before he was suspended, he had been watching his numbers slowly decline for six seasons. Now he was pushing 40, and a part of him certainly seemed ready to embark on his new chapter as a business genius. Of course, There was still the matter of the three years and $61 million remaining on his contract that he was supposed to be guaranteed. But more than that, there was some element of pride here. A-Rod didn't want to get chased out of the league by this ugly suspension, with his last image as a ball player being the 3-for-37 slide that ended his 2013 season, just as the Yankees coughed up any remaining chance of making the playoffs that year. He wanted one last moment of glory, one final goodbye tour. One last moment as a star player he'd been for so long. If he wasn't going to get the respect Instagram filters, at least he wanted like some acknowledgement. But could he actually get that? Most players don't. For most athletes, even the great ones, once you start to lose it, it doesn't ever really come back. As they say, Father Time is undefeated. And that's to say nothing of the damage A-Rod had done to his reputation at this point. This cut against him in two ways. First of all, it's easier for a star to age gracefully when he's already beloved by the fans. Guys like Jeter and Cal Ripken and Ken Griffey Jr., fans were willing to be patient through their long declines because they loved these guys so much. Alex would get no such leeway. But performing well was even more important for him because that was his only hope for winning fans back to his side. He'd lost baseball fans as a whole populace, probably. But if he helped the Yankees win, then at least Yankee fans would jump back on board. No matter what he had been through, everyone seemed to agree that, look, if you play well, the fans will be happy no matter your baggage. To that end, on February 17, 2015, right before the start of spring training, Alex released a brief handwritten statement. These were his first public comments in over a year since his angry statement about the arbitrator's decision to uphold his decision in January of 2014. But this time, he took a contrite tone. To the fans, I take full responsibility for the mistakes that led to my suspension for the 2014 season. I regret that my actions made the situation worse than it needed to be. To Major League Baseball, the Yankees, the Steinbrenner family, the Players Association, and you, the fans, I can only say I'm sorry. I accept the fact that many of you will not believe my apology or anything that I say at this point. I understand why, and that's on me. You might notice that uh, he doesn't actually admit to using steroids or apologize for that. He just says he made the situation worse. He really didn't want to get into the details here. He was trying to put everything behind him. But what could Yankee fans really expect from A-Rod at this point? That offseason, the Yankees had signed Chase Headley to a four-year, $52 million deal to play A-Rod's old position, third base. Though they experimented with moving Alex to first base, it was clear the team was reluctant to rely too much on Rodriguez to do anything. 
After all, it had been eight years since his last MVP season, four years since he'd been an All-Star, three years since his pathetic performance in the 2012 postseason, and 18 months since he had even played a professional baseball game. They said he would be a full-time designated hitter, but it was reasonable to worry about whether Alice could even hit at all. Let's go with uh, the voice of the Yankees. He's Michael Kay back on the program. Mike, let me start there. Alex Rodriguez over under 20 home runs this year. I say under. Okay. Uh, if you think about it, he really hasn't hit over 290 since 2008. So he's not the same hitter. Uh, he's been out essentially two years. And uh, before he got hurt, he was having trouble hitting fastball. So I don't like his chances of, of even hitting 10. And yet, Alex homered in just the third game of the season. He had hits in eight of his first nine starts, including a three-for-four day with two home runs and four RBIs against the Rays in Tampa Bay. By the end of April, Alex had five home runs and an OPS of 876. It wasn't anything like the otherworldly MVP seasons of his earlier career, but the first half of that season was his most productive stretch in five years. Alex had seemingly made a few adjustments for this season. Along the lines of what a lot of hitters do as they age, he was like selling out more for certain pitches he could do damage on, which made him vulnerable to certain pitches in the strike zone, but made up for some of what he lost in terms of bat speed. The result was that his strikeout rate went up and his batting average was down, but he was getting on base more and hitting for more power, enough that he was one of the best hitters on the team. We kind of saw something like this with Albert Pujols in recent years, where like players sort of could make one last final adjustment sort of just become sluggers in their last few seasons. And that's what A-Rod did in 2015. On May 1st, he came up as a pinch hitter against the Red Sox and hit his sixth home run of the year, which also happened to be the 660th home run of his career, tying him with Willie Mays on the all-time list. This was one of the milestone home runs that technically entitled him to a $6 million bonus. That was a big part of the contract he'd signed back in 2007, as we talked about in Chapter 5. But that was two whole steroid scandals ago, and the Yankees refused to pay, pointing out that these bonuses were marketing agreements, and the team had been unable to market the home run chase thanks to the damage done to Alex's reputation. Ultimately, though, the, the fight was resolved rather amicably. The two sides reached an agreement where the Yankees instead gave a smaller amount, $3.5 million, to charity, split between the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, the Boys and Girls Club of Tampa, Pitch In for Baseball, and the MLB Urban Youth Foundation. What's weird about this is, like, why the smaller amount? Like, or, like I get why you would give a smaller amount to A-Rod, and I get why you would give the money to charity. But why would you do both? Yeah, that's a weird <laughs> part. It's just real, like, fuck those kids. Like, they don't get enough money. <laughs> uh, and, like... I don't know. My suspicion is that this was like insisted upon by A-Rod because if you read that J.R. Moringer article, there is a long aside about like A-Rod in the off season to get ready for the 2015 season, working out with Barry Bonds and like them talking about the home run record and A-Rod, like Barry Bonds chiding him that like he would never catch it. He was too out of shape and A-Rod like seemingly being motivated specifically for that particular goal. And I think like, even though A-Rod would never be Jeter, I think he never really abandoned the belief that he could win it back and could get that glory and could, you know, if maybe if he just passed Bonds, he would, fans would finally adore him. Yeah, Tony Bosch, when the Biogenesis stuff came out, he talked about how A-Rod's goal was to hit 800 home runs. And that that milestone was something that A-Rod talked about and, and motivated his 
alleged steroid use. Um, and clearly these milestones meant a lot to him because, you know, you can't take the home runs away. Even if you say they're tainted or his reputation suffered, he would always be on the career leaderboard. And that seemed to be something that was always at the forefront of Alex's mind. You know, it was clear that these milestones were important to him, even if they weren't the same thing. You know, they weren't what the team had expected them to be when they signed that contract. In the actual game, when he hit the home run, though, Alex seemed to really appreciate the moment in a way that was hard for him to express. His father had recently passed away after a long, strained relationship with Alex. And A-Rod mentioned at the press conference after the game that Willie Mays had been his father's favorite player. Well, um, you know, I told Susan in the postgame, nobody will ever pass Willie Mays. Uh, I've talked about him being my father's favorite player. Um, There's only one Willie Mays, um, not only what he did on the field, but what he meant off the field. And... uh, He's a legend, and he's also a role model for all of us. Is it crazy for you to think that there are only three players ever, Bonds, Aaron, and Ruth, and they've hit more home runs than you have? I mean, all of this is pretty crazy, Mark. Um, a year ago today, I never thought that I would ever get a current call or you know, be hitting in the middle of the lineup for the New York Yankees, uh, helping our team win. Um, or when I started playing baseball at the Boys and Girls Club in Miami when I was nine years old. So um, I wish my father was around to, uh, to see this moment. That wasn't the only milestone for Alex that year. A couple of weeks later, he also got his 3,000th hit, becoming only the second Yankee ever to reach that mark. And like the previous Yankee to do it, Derek Jeter, he reached the mark with a home run. Alex was walked in his final at bat last night against the Marlins, so... He's got six games at home to try to get one more hit to get the 3,000. High fly ball, deep right, Martinez back, track, wall, see ya! He did it in style! He joins the 3,000 hit club with a home run! 18,000 men have played Major League Baseball. Only 29 have had 3,000 hits, and Alex Rodriguez now joins the club. Well, in the period of about a year, he's gone from persona non grata to man of the hour. The list of players to have 3,000 hits and 600 home runs, well, it's barely a list. At that point, it was just Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and Alex Rodriguez. Albert Pujols has since joined the club, but it's a reminder of the rarefied air A-Rod was breathing and the historic nature of his career. Obviously, for many people, his numbers will always be tainted by his association with steroids, but without rehashing that, it's worth noting just what a special player he really was. Yeah, A-Rod was a a superstar in three different eras and was sort of a different kind of player in each one. And I think like somehow just looking at the the stats, which are staggering, like doesn't even really tell the full story of his career, which is part of why we're doing this podcast. But (laughs) more than the milestones, though, Alex's production was key to keeping the Yankees in first place in the 2015 season. And that was kind of surprising for the 2015 edition of the team, 
who had missed the playoffs two years in a row and hadn't really made any big acquisitions that offseason. That Yankee team was sort of stitched together. They didn't have a single player who was worth even four wins above replacement, according to baseball reference. This was like a sort of post-Jeter, post-Robinson Cano version of the Yankees. Yeah, it was like the Brian McCann, Jacoby Ellsbury, like Brett Gardner teams, yeah. Yeah, they they hadn't really shifted to to restarting and, and trying to get young, but you know, it wasn't the Yankees who were used to, and they had highly paid veterans, but they weren't like the names you were used to, and it didn't really feel like the old Yankees. So partially because of that, A-Rod's production in the middle of the lineup was crucial. It created both like a practical effect, and also I think there was some kind of like emotional weight there too. In any case, he led the team in home runs and total bases, and was second in both on-base and slugging. And maybe the biggest thing was that he stayed healthy all year, which was key for a team that otherwise suffered a lot of injuries. Alex played in 150 games that year, more than all but two of his teammates, and the most for him since his MVP winning year in 2007. It was enough to keep the Yankees in contention all season long. At the trade deadline, they actually led the AL East by six games. And just as predicted with the team winning, this tension between Alex and the fans started to thaw a little. At the ESPY Awards that summer, he did a dumb bit with Ken Jeong about his desperation to be forgiven. It wasn't really funny, but it was kind of charming, and it made the best use of A-Rod in that he didn't really talk. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Ken Jeong, the official spokesman for A-Rod. What are you doing? Joel, Joel, as you know, Mr. Rod was away from the game of baseball last year, and he has returned this spring humbled and focused. So he's hired me to make this statement of apology on his behalf. I'm sorry for the water shortage in California and the economic collapse in Greece. What did baseball's Alex Rodriguez have to do with that? Oh, let the man repent. Yeah, you're not really going to laugh, but his presence on stage is the important part of this. Just the fact that he would be invited there is like, oh, wow, A-Rod's... A-Rod's not no longer persona non grata. Like, people are doing bits with him. Yeah. Man, Ken Jong, he'll let himself get booked for yeah, anything. Yeah, really. Huh? But more to the point, A-Rod was doing dumb skits again. He was having fun on the baseball field and off. And he was winning. Unfortunately, the Yankees didn't quite sustain the magic they had in the first half. Right around their high point at the trade le- deadline, they went through a stretch where they lost 9 out of 13 games turning a seven-game division lead into a half-game deficit. The truth is, they weren't really that good of a team in 2015, and the Toronto Blue Jays went out at the trade deadline and made a bunch of big moves, including adding David Price and Troy Tulowitzki. Still, the Yankees stuck around. They lost their division lead for good in mid-August, but they still won the wild card, setting up a single-game elimination with the Houston Astros. The Astros were a young ascendant team in 2015, not yet the dynasty that they would become, but still an emerging force. And one of their new stars was that year's Cy Young winner, Dallas Keuchel. Keuchel had shut the Yankees down twice that season already, including a complete game shutout in Houston back in June. This time he was only going on three days of rest, but he was still masterful, striking out seven and only giving up three hits over six innings. 
The Yankees only ever had two opportunities to hit with a runner in scoring position, and both times it was Alex Rodriguez at the plate. In the first, with a guy on second base, he struck out looking to end the inning. And then in the sixth, with runners on first and second and two outs, and the Yankees trailing two to nothing, and Keuchel nearing the end of his rope, they had their best chance to score. And A-Rod flew out to center field. In what would turn out to be his last career playoff game, Alex went 0 for 4 with two strikeouts and the Yankees lost 3 to nothing. It was yet another playoff disappointment for Rodriguez, but it was hard to be too disappointed with the results, given where expectations for both A-Rod and the team had been going into that season. He'd had more left in the tank than anyone could have reasonably expected, but it just wasn't enough for a deep playoff run. And by 2016, it was clear the tank was finally empty. There had been signs of this at the end of the 2015 year when A-Rod's batting average fell dramatically over the last two months. He also had 59 strikeouts in his final 183 at-bats in 2015. And any hope this was just a slump seemed to fade early the next season when he was hitting just 185 in April. In early May, he strained his hamstring, yet another lower body injury, and he missed a month of the season. He hit his sixth home run in his second game back, but that was his only hit in a stretch of 16 at-bats, dropping his OPS to 649. That's pretty dreadful for any player, but for a full-time designated hitter, it's untenable. When Alex hadn't turned things around by the end of June, the Yankees started leaving him out of the lineup completely. Often he would only appear as a pinch hitter. He had only one start over an 11-game stretch over the first two weeks of July, and it was clear the Yankees were trying to move on from him. To be fair to A-Rod, though, it wasn't just him. The whole Yankees lineup that year was awful. Mark Teixeira, Brett Gardner, Jacoby Ellsbury, Chase Headley, none of them were hitting. The whole team just seemed old and slow. A-Rod was just the most extreme example. The team was in such dire straits that that July they did something almost unprecedented. They were sellers at the trade deadline. Things had been bad before. They'd missed the playoffs in 2008, 2013, and 2014. But in those years, they had at least been contention in the final weeks of the season. But in 2016, they threw in the towel, conceding that they likely wouldn't make the playoffs and traded away any player that might get a return back. They traded away Araldis Chapman to the Cubs, Andrew Miller to Cleveland, Those were their two best relief pitchers. They also traded Carlos Beltran to Texas. He was the only hitter on the team having a good season. And they even traded starter Ivan Nova. It really didn't bring back much, but it was just like, hey, anything that's not nailed down, send it away. Yeah, and Andrew Miller and Raldis Chapman would go on to pitch against each other in the World Series that year. People don't forget. (laughs) The goal was clearly to get younger. For the first time in a long time, the Yankees seemed to have a crop of new young talent coming up. At the end of the 2015 season, they had called up Greg Bird and Luis Severino, who each had great stretches and looked like future stars. Now they acquired more star prospects in Glaber Torres, Clint Frazier, and Justice Sheffield. Plus, they still had more guys in their own system, guys Yankees fans had been hearing about for a while, people like Gary Sanchez, Tyler Austin, and Jordan Montgomery. With the writing on the wall about where the team was going, Mark Teixeira announced that 2016 would be his last year. He was in the final year of his contract, and the Yankees had Greg Bird, another first baseman, waiting in the wings. So this seemed like an elegant way of passing the torch from one generation to the next. 
one legend handing it off to him. <laughs> Future star Greg Bird. He really seemed like he was going to be something, you know? Yeah. But there would be no graceful transition for A-Rod. The Yankees couldn't trade him because nobody wanted him. His contract was too high. He couldn't hit or play the field anymore. Plus, half the league hated him, if not the whole league. Yeah, at least half the league. Yeah. But he still had a year and a half left on his deal. Yankees couldn't just carry him on the roster that long. So on August 7th, with two months still left in the season, in the middle of a terrible year playing for a mediocre team, Alex Rodriguez, one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived, announced his retirement. This is a tough day. I love this game, and I love this team. And today, I'm saying goodbye to both. No athlete ever ends his career or her career the way you want to. We all want to keep playing forever. But it doesn't work that way. Accepting the end gracefully is part of being a professional athlete. Saying goodbye may be the hardest part of the job, but that's what I'm doing today. I want to thank mom, who's watching at home, and my daughters. Thank you for your support. You've been through so much with me. It was a weird deal. He would play one more game in Boston and then one more at Yankee Stadium as a chance to say goodbye. But it was clear this was not how he wanted to go out. He would get no prolonged farewell tour. Officially, the Yankees were releasing him, meaning that Alex would get every penny still owed to him on his contract. And the team announced a new role for him as some kind of miscellaneous quote-unquote advisor, so he could still be around the team. But as a player, he was done. Yeah, I mean, I think it was such a weird deal because the Yankees pushed A-Rod out and got almost nothing in return. They didn't get any players back. They didn't get any salary relief. They just wanted his roster spot. He was so bad that even just getting him off the team for nothing in exchange was worth it. It was just just such a sad, like, pathetic ending for one of the best players ever. Yeah, and we opened this episode with a comparison between A-Rod and Jeter. And something I want to kind of like bring up here is that whereas Jeter was always seen as somebody who was kind of like in his own tier and who led by example and kind of breathed rarefied air as like the Yankees captain, a lot of these younger players that the Yankees were sort of setting up to take over the team in this year, like swear by A-Rod. Um A-Rod was like a very active mentor to a lot of them, gave them hitting tips. It seemed like he really did care about being sort of like a standard bearer and like a flag carrier for the Yankees. Um, Yeah, and that like advisor relationship did seem conducive to that, that he would sort of continue to mentor and like coach these younger players in a kind of, you know, not necessarily day-to-day basis, but maybe like showing up at spring training. It seemed conducive to the role he had taken on that year and a half but he was just so done as a player that they were like we can't you can't keep trotting you out there every day and watch you strike out three times yeah and it is ironic given like his 
public perception and like years of clubhouse turmoil with like his other peers and like more veteran players right right no it was it was like the first time that he was like yeah the the guy everybody liked in the clubhouse the friday of alex's last game ever right after he makes this announcement alex went one for four with an rbi double which was big because that brought his season batting average to exactly 200 and the yankees beat the rays six to three In the ninth inning, Joe Girardi put A-Rod back at third base, where he could play the position he'd played for over a decade with the Yankees for one last inning. Kind of reminds you of that all-star game with Cal Ripken back in 2001. Yeah, there's some similarities, yeah. And it was a bittersweet moment, obviously. A kind of perfectly ambivalent ending to a strange, confusing, up-and-down, back-and-forth career. Like, I mean, do, should we even really remember A-Rod as a third baseman? I'm not sure. He played more games at third base, I think, than he ever played at shortstop. But it is, like, it's, it is weird. It's like imagining Willie Mays as a Met. You know, it's like it happened. But is that is that what we want to talk about, you know? Alex, I know you're looking for your family right now. But at the conclusion of this game, you walked to third base one last time. What was going through your mind as you made that walk? Well, it was exciting. That's that's where I played, um, you know, a lot of my baseball over here. That's where we won the world championship in 2009. And uh, Alex getting a little emotional now. How difficult was it for you to keep your emotions in check tonight? Uh, it was difficult. Um, I can't say enough about these fans. Um, uh, I've given these fans a lot of headaches over the years, and uh, I've disappointed a lot of people. But like I've always said, you don't have to be defined by your mistakes. How you come back matters too, and that's what New York's all about. After he was released, there was some speculation that Rodriguez would go somewhere else. He was technically a free agent, and there was some thought he might go down to Miami and play for the Marlins. He was poignantly just four home runs short of becoming the fourth player ever to hit 700 homers. And perhaps Miami would sign him just so they could see the chase. But no, A-Rod said he was going to retire as a Yankee, and he was true to his word. His playing career was over. And as for the Yankees, the day they cut Alex, to replace him on the roster, they called up one of their outfield prospects for his major league debut a young player named Aaron Judge. Back in 2015, after the Yankees had been eliminated from the postseason, Alex got a new opportunity to join the Fox Sports Studio Show for the rest of the playoffs. Starting in Game 3 of the ALCS, he was part of the network's pregame and postgame coverage. On some level, this was a sign of how quickly he had rehabilitated himself, going from banned from baseball to covering the league's most marquee event in just a year. Of course, Fox already had Pete Rose working for them, so these bans weren't ever the strictest of moral condemnations. But beyond just the official ban, the fact that Fox saw A-Rod as someone who could sell and promote the game was kind of remarkable given how toxic he had been with fans just a few months earlier. Even more remarkable was that they were right. Early reviews of Alex's TV performance were very good. As we have said many times throughout this series, the one thing you can always say about Rodriguez is that he loves baseball, and that love is very apparent when he talks about the game. 
He obviously knows baseball so well, and this was a role that he could thrive in. He could talk from a special blend of experience and analytics. He could take a bat and demonstrate how Daniel Murphy's swing had evolved under hitting coach Kevin Long, who had coincidentally been A-Rod's hitting coach for several seasons. He could talk about hitting Matt Harvey's fastball and how it was like, quote, hitting a bowling ball, which like, that's a good phrase. He was good at the job. You, I mean, you seem comfortable on the air. Are you enjoying it? Uh, I am enjoying it, but I wasn't comfortable the first two days. Man, is that difficult to do. Now, is this just talking based on the experiences of the season, or how much homework did you have to do going into that first broadcast? I watch all the time, Don. So yeah. I, I study the game religiously. And, and the thing is, if I wasn't at Fox at the studio, um, I would be at home, and I would be watching every playoff game. And sometimes I rewind plays and... I've been doing that since I was seven years old. I mean, I learned how to play baseball listening to Ralph Kiner and Tim McCarver. And so after he retired in 2016, it seemed natural that he would join Fox on a full-time basis. That year, he did the playoffs again for the network. And then in 2017, he worked for them all season long, even doing color commentary during some games. The next year, he was hired by ESPN to be the main analyst for Sunday Night Baseball, maybe the most high-profile announcing gig in the sport. Being a national baseball announcer is a tough job, apparently. I mean, there are almost no good ones. Yeah. <laughs> David Cohn, I like. I think David Cohn's pretty Yeah, good. David Cohn is one. Is, who's the one on TBS? Joe something? Joe like Davis. Very, Joe Davis yeah. is really yeah, good. Yeah, he's good. He's good, yeah. Uh, but those are like literally the only two good ones I can think <laughs> of. Uh, <laughs> Um, if you run a national national broadcasting company, feel free to hire the lefty specialist to announce national. Yeah, we'll do baseball. it. We'll be probably as bad as the ones who do it now. We won't, you know, yeah. we, we won't be any worse. National announcers in every sport are always going to attract some amount of hate, whether you're Joe Buck or Jeff Van Gundy. Um, but in baseball, there's just so many games. It makes it impossible to know every team in great detail meaning national broadcasts are always a little disappointing to superfans of the teams involved. But Alex had things even tougher. In a studio show, Alex could prepare his little talking points and deliver them in short bursts of expertise. He could also like show enthusiasm in a, in a much different way that was like sort of uh, better for like quick little hits and, and players and things that he was passionate about. It was a pretty good showcase for the things that made A-Rod good at the job his knowledge and his general passion. Plus in 2017, David Ortiz had joined the Fox crew in the studio and the two of them developed their own little like Yankees, Red Sox, Laurel and Hardy routine, which some people seem to like, although those people are not John nor I. <laughs> yeah. We, we want to go on record as saying we find it very annoying. <laughs> so excited. We're Instagram living this thing. It's big poppy. This is, this is going to be historic. <laughs> oh right boy. Historical. Let's go back. <laughs> look, at the, look at the goggles right here. I was ready. Let's go back in case you missed it. There was a bet between Alex and David. Let's set it up. Here it is. We decided let's put, let's put a little bet on this, right? Frank? Oh yeah. So, so tell me if you guys agree. Here's what we'll do. The loser of this series will have to wear the opposing uniform, full uniform on set and have to get doused by champagne. What do you think? The loser. So yeah, the he's size because he's the one wearing it. <laughs> I like it. I, I'm going to call Robbie Kakuza and get a big, uh, a triple X for big coffee. <laughs> but as an actual in-game analyst, Alex had to be more spontaneous and relaxed and probably more formal and prepared, which he wasn't always great at. 
It also helps if you have any degree of chemistry with your partners in the booth. But Rodriguez never seemed to develop that kind of rapport with the Sunday Night Baseball play-by-play guy, Matt Vasgersian, or fellow analyst Jessica Mendoza. It, it often seemed, if you watched Sunday Night Baseball in the years of that trio, that they were watching like three different baseball games at the same time. If you imagine them in three separate booths recording their things without hearing the others, that's sort of how it sounded. Like they would just say things and it wouldn't necessarily respond to each They just didn't have any kind of chemistry or like, uh, or rapport. It was always very stilted. Yeah. And like, you know, I liked Matt Buzgersian in other booths and in other contexts. And like, I really liked A-Rod as a studio guy. It was just like, was not working. Yeah. Yeah. All three of them, I think individually are good. I just think they just never clicked together. Yeah. Being in the booth at its best, it's supposed to create a more casual, welcoming atmosphere. Like you're watching a game with friends and as a fan, you can kind of tap into your old standbys as you, like, watch whatever game is on. But, uh, yeah, like, A-Rod was never good at creating the illusion of camaraderie that a good booth requires. Yeah, I think this kind of, like, I have this theory, which goes back to what we were just talking about with him as the mentor, like, that he'd become in the clubhouse in the last years of his career. Because my theory is that, Alex prefers hierarchical relationships to equal ones. That is, he likes it when there is a clear top and a bottom, a clear teacher and a student, a clear mentor and a mentee. Even if that makes him the inferior one, he'd rather be that than have like equal terms with people. We've talked in previous episodes of this podcast about him being sort of a teacher's pet or a suck up to owners and executives like Tom Hicks and Randy Levine. There's also the question of when he was a good teammate. You know, what made him popular in the clubhouse? Well, when he had like, when he was like the elder statesman surrounded by a lot of younger players who could look up to him, he gravitated towards that. But when he had to get along with other, you know, stars like Ken Griffey Jr. and Derek Jeter and Jason Giambi, like that never quite worked. And in a studio show, that is a more like lecture oriented relationship. You're kind of communicated something to fans. But in a booth, you're more being more like friendly. You kind of have to get along with the people around you and be like sort of friends with the fans who are watching at home. You know, it's less teacher student. And we've talked in the past in previous episodes of this podcast about the way like random businessmen seem to pop up to advise A-Rod at major moments in his life, whether that was Joe Ariola negotiating his first deal with the Mariners in 1993 or Warren Buffett helping him repair things with the Yankees in 2007 or Michael Milken advising him in 2014 when he's doing when he was suspended. He always seems to be looking for some high achiever to tell him what to do. But in an unstructured environment, like like a broadcast booth, he doesn't always know how to act. That brings us to the other thing that makes Alex annoying as an announcer. His constant praise of owners and executives. Nary a game goes by without Rodriguez in the booth finding a way to credit a GM or an owner instead of players. What makes this even more infuriating, for A-Rod especially, is that all the pro-owner narratives that he promotes are the same one that he, as a player, was a prime victim of. He talks about how teams shouldn't give long-term contracts to high-priced free agents. Alex Rodriguez says that. (laughs) Patient zero. He talks about the value of little guys, of guys who move runners over and sacrifice bunt. Alex, who didn't sacrifice bunt one goddamn time for the last 16 years of his career. 
He talks about clutch hitting and things that don't show up in the box score and how statistics can be misleading. The same shit that everyone used to vilify A-Rod after his big contract in 2000. For years before Alex became an announcer, baseball broadcasts were in a sort of civil war. We talked about this a lot back in Chapter 5 when we mentioned the blog Fire Joe Morgan, which was named after Joe Morgan, who was the old guy who had A-Rod's job for years the number one analyst on Sunday Night Baseball, all through the 1990s and into 2010. The site was named after Joe Morgan because he had become a symbol of old-school analysts who dismissed the new stats popularized by Moneyball and its ilk. And for years, there was a divide among baseball analysts between guys who rejected these stats like Joe Morgan and often dismissed them in the most insulting ways And then on the other side, there were the guys who gravitated to these new stats and incorporated them into their analysis. But by the time Alex came aboard, the sabermetric revolution had taken over. The new analytics had been adopted by basically every team, and the generation of old school guys like Joe Morgan and Tony LaRusa had mostly turned over. What became clear is that the fights had never really been about the stats themselves. As we previously discussed, The new stats had been a way to find undervalued players, and the goal was always to advance the interests of owners and budget-conscious GMs definitionally definitionally at the expense of player salaries. And then here comes A-Rod, the symbol of the salary explosion, who was constantly criticized for having stats that misrepresented his true value. And now he's on TV finding ways to do the exact same thing to other players. It's not really about stats now, although Alex does like to sing the praises of batting average and other old-school numbers, but his commentary always seems to have the agenda of advancing the interests of owners and GMs at the expense of players. It's ironic that Alex is doing the same thing to, to other players that hurt his reputation so much when he was a player, but what one thing that it definitely shows is that he never really identified with members of his class. Yeah, watching A-Rod the announcer and media personality, it was clear that he saw his post-playing career as an attempt to leave behind his old class position as a player and salary-earning worker, and instead climb the class ladder towards ownership. And crucially, this wasn't just about money. He already had money. Alex had been rich for 20 years, and he could have invested his money quietly and conservatively, like a lot of ex-athletes do. But no, A-Rod wanted to be known as an owner and as a savvy, shrewd businessman. When I was a 10-year-old boy, I had two dreams. I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player, and I wanted to be a CEO of a major company. There was this weird moment in the booth between A-Rod and Jessica Mendoza in 2019. Alex, at this point, was still theoretically an advisor to the Yankees, as per the agreement announced when he retired. And Mendoza had a part-time consulting role with the Mets front office. And while they were calling a Subway Series game, they started casually discussing hypothetical trades between the two teams. This was a normal thing for announcers to do during a game. But if they were actually employees of the two teams, it was a little weird and could conceivably violate tampering rules, which limits what executives can say publicly about players under contract with other teams. To kind of save face, the Yankees had to put out a statement that said, actually, Alex and the team had already parted ways that offseason, and he no longer worked for the team. And look, he was probably never really an advisor in any official sense. That was always mostly a way of letting him retire with some dignity. But it showed how Alex was blurring the line between media figure, analyst, and consultant for owners. 
In 2017, he had started appearing on Shark Tank, not to mention some other CNBC business shows. In 2018, he launched a podcast with Barstool Sports called The Core Podcast, named for his company, A-Rod Corp. A-Rod Corp first actually got attention back in 2007 when Alex was in the he's not clutch enough, he's not a true Yankee phase of the backlash. In December of 2007, after another disappointing playoff performance in the Yankees' third straight division series loss, the New York Times ran a story about an apartment complex Rodriguez owned in Tampa, Florida. The story, which was written by Selena Roberts, who eventually wrote a pretty lousy biography of A-Rod, which we've mentioned before, it's actually kind of funny because the newsworthiness of the article is not totally clear. There are some problems at the apartment, a broken window, someone complains about ants, there's a broken railing, but it's nothing really out of the ordinary. It's normal landlord shit. I'm sure some listeners have experienced some more things. The article even acknowledges that it's not exactly a slum. But the framing of the article, which came right after Rodriguez signed his second 10-year deal for $275 million, is all about how it shows that Alex is more about dollars and cents than about championships. To quote from it, An examination of his high-rolling corporate side, as well as a glossy A-Rod family foundation short on largesse, reveals a portrait of Rodriguez as a player about to enter Yankee Take Two solely for business purposes, primarily as a branding tool. He emerges as an obsessive pursuer of cold, hard numbers on and off the bases, with serially disingenuous nods to his ever-challenged image. Yeah, that's such a, it's so funny that like this like strained way the article tries to make Alex's like experience as a landlord the same as his experience as like a player you know they're like oh look he cares mostly about money in both situations it's like i don't know i think you think like all landlords care mostly about money and i think like all players like get paid a lot of money like i don't know what is the what is the point you're trying to make yeah and there would be like future coverage that would sort of like bring this up as sort of like a surprising factor or something that he owned this like small apartment complex and you know, in that case, I think it's like, you know, A-Rod makes hundreds of millions of dollars, but like he's still doing this small potatoes ownership thing, you know, and uh, it's like when he like from one perspective, it's like he he's not big time enough to like really own stuff. And then on the other, it's like, oh, he's only motivated by money. And like, you know, that shows what his flaws as a player and as a person. But like, you know, obviously he was just trying to like put his money into something that uh, would continue to generate profit for him. Yeah. There's stuff in the Selena Roberts article about A-Rod's lack of charitable giving compared to other star athletes, which is a fair criticism. But what does that have to do with running a for-profit real estate management company? Does the New York Times think that if Alex didn't own this apartment complex, then suddenly all the repairs would be done on time and evictions would stop and late fees would disappear? Of course not. Rodriguez wasn't a shitty landlord because he was a quote-unquote obsessive pursuer of cold hard numbers on and off the bases, end quote. He was a shitty landlord because the nature of the landlord-tenant relationship is inherently exploited. The profits of the landlord come out of the pockets of the tenant. But in 2007, this was somehow used as evidence that Alex was a bad teammate. By 2017, though, he was no longer expected to be a team player. His business empire was now used as evidence of his own individual savviness. Instead of being special on the field, he was special in the boardroom. 
that was becoming part of his branding. Yeah, you see this sort of change because like in 20 in 2007, the framing of the New York Times article about this this apartment complex is like almost as if it should be a charity endeavor by A-Rod. Like, oh, he should be running this building at a loss for the benefit of the tenants, which is like, yeah, I, I agree. But like, that's not how we do things in this country. Like capitalism is like, no, landlords get to take money from tenants. And he never like presented it as charity. But as a player, like when you have off the field pursuits, they're supposed to be charitable. That's the expectation. But when you're retired, now you're supposed to be a mogul, a businessman. And suddenly the, the framing of that is very different. And the fact that you own property is seen as, oh, look how smart and savvy and clever. And, you know, he's still working, even though he's not playing anymore. And he's proving himself off the field. And he's not just a jock. He's also a businessman. And I think if we go back to that ESPN, the magazine story, the one we opened this episode with uh, about A-Rod in the marketing class, that I think really gets at what's going on here. Of all the books and profiles and interviews with A-Rod that we've read in the course of this podcast, I think the J.R. Moringer story is probably the best one. And one thing it really captures is his desperation to prove himself. Alex's insecurity is always a major theme of anything about him, but it's usually used to make him seem kind of pathetic. Like, how could this incredibly rich and successful person be so desperate to be liked? But I think the ESPN story captures it in a much more human way. And one thing Moringer does, which is, I think, very smart, is he never quotes A-Rod directly in the story. As he writes, there's no point in quoting someone who you can't really trust to tell his story honestly. Quote, Take a sentence from Rodriguez, set it between two quotation marks, and watch what happens. It curdles like year-old milk. The words become unstable, unusable, weirdly ironic. Quoting Rodriguez is like dropping a mento into a Diet Coke. It makes a big whoosh, everyone gets excited for about three seconds, and then it's just a mess, and you wonder what's been accomplished besides some stickiness and maybe a permanent stain. End quote. What immediately comes to mind after you read that quote is the uh, denials and apology statements from chapter eight. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like it, like weirdly ironic is a great descriptor for things A-Rod says. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I think like Moringer says in the article, he writes like he doesn't get he like he's lost the privilege of being quoted. Like when you lie so much, like you just can't, you know, like you, why trust anything this guy says? But it still like covers him with this, I think, deep sympathy and humanity and recognizing like there's a part in the article where he talks about how insecure he like you know because he's like i never went to college i'm nervous about doing well in the class and like he gets like a d or something on his first assignment and he's like really he like really is embarrassed and like works really hard to like get his grade up to like a b or something and it's like yeah he really wants to do well he really wants to prove himself and it's like you know there's something very human about that the flip side of the lack of trust is that Alex was always desperate for something else to do the talking for him, like his grades, or as a player, it was his stats and his rings. But once the career was over, it was his wealth and his business success primarily. He wanted people to respect him, and he feels that by building a so-called business empire, he can be worthy of that respect. You can really see this in his appearances on Shark Tank, where he's always talking like a guy who has overheard some business school classes and is sort of desperate to impress you with like catchy phrases. He talks about EBITDA like he's Polly Walnuts in The Sopranos. Mackenzie, in a business like this, I would love to pay five to eight times EBITDA or net earnings, okay? There's lots of things to take into account. 
You even know what your EBITDA is? My what? Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Gives a true picture of a company's profitability. Everything he says on these business shows is so just like dripping with like condescending aphorisms about like how to make money and like it's just like so dumb and so cliche and so but he's just like he wants to like impart wisdom he's always saying things like like the kinds of things you put up in inspirational posters or whatever and he thinks it's like good business advice or whatever so let me first of all say that i love to do business with people who have a phd mm -hmm. and i don't mean from harvard or yale i mean poor hungry and driven and both of you have that. Thank so you. I love that. Thank you. To be quite honest, and I'm conflicted because I am a one that invests in jockeys, not horses, and you're the ultimate jockey. Chris, I love the backstory. You know, I own part of a thousand gyms in 20 countries. Uh, I understand athletes. So when we see entrepreneurs sit in that rug and you're an athlete, I feel like you're a guy coming into the Yankee clubhouse and you're a guy that I wanted to foxhole with me because I think you're a championship player. Jeff, I can relate with your story because, you know, I played 23 years in the major leagues. Yes. I'm fifth all time in the history of the game in strikeouts. That means I have a PhD at failing. <laughs> but I also have a, a master's at getting back up. And you know what? Uh, we used to say the only way out of the hood is to hit home runs or get an education. <laughs> I want to get. <sighs> and then there's the JLo of it all. Alex's relationship with Jennifer Lopez began in 2017. Well, actually, they met before that, and there's that clip of him calling her his dream date back in 1998, but they began dating in the spring of 2017, Alex's first year post-retirement. They quickly became a public couple, and immediately it helped boost his public persona. Even A-Rod's daughters liked him way more when he started dating J-Lo. The two actually had a lot in common. They were both born in New York City to parents who had migrated from Latin America. Jennifer's family is from Puerto Rico, while Alex's is from the Dominican Republic. They both got famous in the 90s for demonstrating a surprising amount of range as performers. And they both had to deal with the public kind of turning on them once they got really big and started making a lot of money. They both dealt with allegations of being divas and difficult to work with. And they had both had experience winning fans back. They were both kind of experts at it. Well, J-Lo was an expert at it. A-Rod was decent. A-Rod never learned that love don't cost a thing. It's true. He really he really should have learned that in a, more, in a deeper level. Jennifer Lopez was an expert at meticulously crafting her public image. And she really seemed to help A-Rod with that as aspect of his retired life. Rodriguez had had high-profile relationships before. There was that thing with Madonna, whatever in the world that was happening there. <laughs> yeah. But also at Dalliance with Kate Hudson, one with Cameron Diaz, and a long-term thing with a WWE diva named Tori Wilson. But with Jennifer Lopez, it reached a new level, not just because she was a star of a different magnitude, but because the two of them were so public-facing with their relationship. It was almost like they were business partners, and the business was their relationship to each other. And they used it to further their careers, both separately and together. They were prolific posters, showcasing their relationship on Instagram and using that to land endorsement deals. You ready for the big announcement, Jen? Uh, yeah, okay, okay. All right, action. You know, I often get asked, Jennifer, how do you do everything you do? Music career, movie career, parenting, your relationship, staying in shape. 
It's like people think you're some kind of superhero. And to that, I call bullshit. Excuse my French. Because the truth is, every woman out there is a superhero who has to juggle a million things at once and make it work every day. That's why Alex and I are so excited to announce and to partner with a brand that makes self-care so easy and effective. First take, that's a wrap. Really? Okay. <laughs> you must be an actress or something. <laughs> For J-Lo, the relationship coincided with yet another renaissance. This was when she was getting Oscar buzz for Hustlers and performing at the Super Bowl. I do think one funny thing about this is like they made that Netflix documentary about her halftime performance. It's just called Halftime. Uh, and that was filmed in 2019 and 2020, like before her performance and then like leading up to her performance at that Super Bowl, which was when she and A-Rod were dating. But the movie didn't come out on Netflix until 2022, by which point she had broken up and had started dating Ben Affleck. And so somehow the movie is edited so that A-Rod never appears, but Ben Affleck does, which is just like shows J-Lo's powers. Like she could bend time to her will. Like somehow she could retcon the relationship in this documentary. Listeners might not have expected us to be such J-Lo heads, but here we Look, are. We did, we did our full research on A-Rod. We went deep in J-Lo. <laughs> <laughs> and for A-Rod... This relationship boosted his general likability and kept him relevant after his playing days were over, which is what he wanted. What they both seemed to understand was how to leverage their celebrity into not just wealth, because any celebrity can sign a lucrative endorsement deal, but a kind of brand ownership. They both seemed to realize that earning power comes and goes, especially when it's based on something as fickle as fame. Both A-Rod and J-Lo had periods where everyone loved them, and then saw everyone suddenly turn against them on a dime. But under capitalism, ownership lasts forever. A sponsor can be dropped, a player can be cut or suspended, but you can't really get rid of an owner. Even in the extremely rare sports context, when an owner gets pushed out, like Donald Sterling or Dan Snyder, you still have to buy them out. You've got to pay them to go away. Dan Snyder got $6 billion. There's no inherent discount there. Yeah, you don't get a penalty for, for being an immoral person. Like both Donald Sterling and Dan Snyder made out like bandits in their sale. And that brings us to A-Rod and J-Lo's most high-profile business venture, their attempts to buy the New York Mets. The Wilpont family, who had owned the Mets since 1986, had dabbled in selling the team before. In 2011, after they were caught up in the Bernie Madoff scandal, they reached a deal with hedge fund manager David Einhorn, but that eventually fell through. Instead, they sold off as much as 48% of the team in smaller chunks to raise money. Then in 2019, they started negotiations with another hedge fund guy, Steve Cohen. But those also fell apart in February of 2020. And then COVID happened. The shutdown in March of 2020 delayed the start of opening day and required a season to be played without fans in the stadiums. It also inflamed tensions between owners and players, which had already been strained by the last CBA negotiations. But now, owners were insisting they couldn't afford to play the season without fans unless players agreed to take a pay cut. When players refused, the owners refused to start the season on time, insisting they were losing money with every game that they played without fans at stadiums. This is funny because in every negotiation, the owners always claim they're losing money. But this time, they were like, no, now it's actually serious. It's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, and like they probably were right. Like, you know, you, without fans, like, they support this sport. But it was just funny to watch them go like, I know we always say we're losing money, but now we really mean it, guys. Like, 
And it was like a, a, a confusing time, as I'm sure most people remember. And for live sports, it was unclear when fans would be back and what if they did come back and what form they would be back and in what numbers. And so the business of sports started to seem very shaky. In that environment, the Wilpons, who were always known as penny pinchers, decided to finally truly sell the team. And one of the group's bidding was led by Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. It almost seemed poetic. Not only were Alex and Jennifer both from New York, but Rodriguez, remember, had grown up rooting for the Mets and had nearly signed with them back in 2000. Plus, at the time, Derek Jeter was the owner of the Miami Marlins, meaning Jeter and Ara, the two former rivals, would have owned competing teams in the same division. And it really didn't seem like a pipe dream. They put together a real ownership group consisting of not just athletes, but also funding from billionaire Mike Rapoli, and other owners seem to be pulling for them based on reports by Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic. The optics of having two major celebrities who would have been just the second owners in the league of Latin American descent was appealing, even in spite of Alex's controversial past. It also helped them that their chief competition was Steve Cohen, a shady character who had been convicted of insider trading and faced other allegations of financial impropriety. There was some political pressure from progressives in New York, like the then mayor, Bill de Blasio, who had the power to block a sale by overseeing the lease on City Field. He apparently wanted them to sell to somebody besides Cohen. You know, in a different universe, I could see A-Rod and Steve Cohen being great buddies. <laughs> oh, I think they are. I mean, he says incredibly positive things about Steve Cohen to this day. Well, it's just, it's it's like a shame that they had to compete against each <laughs> yeah, other. It is. It. Like, yeah. In a, you know, in a, in a better lifetime, maybe they, they would have been great in the friends. same group. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to say you thought A-Rod and Bill de Blasio could have gotten along. And I was like, no, no way. Never. <laughs> but that July, like a true idiot, A-Rod, while on an ESPN conference call with reporters, suggested that players would need to accept a salary cap similar to what existed in the NFL and the NBA. The reaction from players was swift and fierce, with guys calling him a hypocrite and suggesting he had once again betrayed the Players Association. As Tony Clark, the MLBPA president, put it, quote, Alex benefited as much as anybody from the battles this union fought against owners' repeated attempts to get a salary cap. Now that he is attempting to become an owner himself, his perspective appears to be different. And that perspective does not reflect the best interests of the players, end quote. Man, Tony Clark must be so fucking sick of it, Ron. I know. Well, it is like he's now like the fourth president of the Players Association who's had to deal with some fucking A-Rod scandal in the middle. You know, it's like Michael Wiener had to do it. Tony Clark had to do it. Like Gene Orza had to deal. You know, it's like they all are like like he's just like a thorn in the side of every union president. So Rodriguez quickly apologized and pointed out that he never used the word salary cap. What he said was that they should, quote, split the economics evenly, end quote. The whole thing wouldn't have been that big of a deal, except that things between the players and owners were especially tense at that moment. And Alex didn't really have much margin for error, for reasons that we've detailed. He and Jen couldn't compete with Steve and Co. on dollars and cents. Their pockets weren't deep enough to match his bid. So they had to win on popularity, but A-Rod couldn't pull that off. They could point out that Cohen was plagued by legal trouble and scandal, but Alex wasn't a clean slate himself. They could play up Rodriguez's history as a player, but now the players didn't even want him or respect him in some cases. It wasn't clear if A-Rod and J-Lo ever had a chance, and a few weeks later they pulled their bid. 
Cohen and the Mets entered a period of exclusivity that August, and the eventual sale was for $2.4 billion, the most anyone has ever paid for a baseball team. Yeah, I do wonder, do you think like they ever really had a chance? Like, do you think they were kept in as bidders to like drive up the bid from Cohen? Like, how seriously did you take the A-Rod buying the Mets thing when it was happening? I mean, I took it very seriously. I mean, you know, as a fan, I just wanted Jeter and A-Rod to be owners in the same division. But yeah, I mean, when Steve Cohen just like sort of shot them out of the ballpark, I didn't, wasn't necessarily surprised either. Yeah, no, I think when that guy, Mike Rapoli, who I think he founded Vitamin Water, he's, you know, like I, he has like a net worth of like in the billions of dollars. When he got involved, I was like, oh, this is serious because it seems similar to like when Jeter and Joel Sherman, not Joel Sherman, Bruce Sherman, bought the Marlins in, I think, 2017. Uh, you know, it was like that. It, it was similar to the Michael Jordan deal in the NBA where you have like, you know, he's not putting up most of the money, but he's going to be the public face of the team. He'll be the team president. He'll have a, an equity stake, but he'll mainly just be like the face of the group. And I thought that would work with A-Rod. You know, I think the thing was just like, is baseball going to like, like draw some ethical line at Steve Cohen. And once it became clear, people really wanted Cohen's deep pockets in the league at that moment, because I think players wanted an owner with deep pockets who could afford to spend on free agents. And that's what Cohen seemed to be promising. And owners wanted somebody who was going to drive up the value of franchises at a time where it seemed like they might be be shaky. Yeah, you know, I was excited by the opportunity because I did like the idea. First of all, it would mean A-Rod probably couldn't be a Sunday night baseball guy anymore. Yeah. But I think like... Um... Yeah, I was going to say, that's actually an interesting angle that I feel like was under-discussed and has been under-examined is like, yeah, like people talk about the former player as an owner thing, but also yeah. the like active media member and like public personality around the sport as owner. Like that's kind of weird too. <laughs> Yeah, and I do think there is something troubling in the way A-Rod was sort of blurring the lines between like, what are you exactly? Are you a media personality? Are you like a, are you an owner? Are you a player? Like, who do you stand for? Who do you represent? And like, what is your agenda here? Like, luckily, this didn't really, because the, the season was delayed so much, he wasn't actually calling very many games in this period, because they didn't start playing until like late July in 2020. But uh you know, while this was all playing out, like imagine if like he was calling a Mets game, like what the fuck would that have been? <laughs> and he did call Mets games like in the aftermath of the. Yeah. You know? And it's just like, what the hell? In any case, by the spring of 2021, A-Rod and J-Lo announced that they had broken up. In classic A-Rod fashion, it was a very tabloidy breakup. There were cheating rumors that involved a cast member from the Bravo show Southern Charm. By the way, it's my favorite Bravo show. <laughs> <laughs> Big endorsement from the lefty specialist of which best Bravo show. And then a false report that they had broken up. And then after the false report, they did this like very transparently choreographed public appearance that in front of paparazzi that was then sort of abandoned and quickly followed up by an announcement that they actually were breaking up. Um, and that April, the statement that they finally said, basically said that they'd be better as friends, insisting that, quote unquote, we will continue to work together and support each other on our shared businesses and projects. We wish the best for each other and one another's children, end quote. 
So they did mention their business projects before their kids, probably because that's what sort of kept them having to deal with each other for some time afterward. The thing about mentioning their businesses before their kids is it was almost hard to separate them. So much of the branding that A-Rod and J-Lo did was about their blended family. I mean, I'm thinking of Shark Tank episodes where he would talk about products for the kids or for us or for we and for the family. Um, So it was really hard to disentangle the two. It was like, yeah, like they weren't even married and like... They seemed so entrenched economically and financially. Yeah, like, no. like I'm sure they like co-signed loans together. Oh, stuff. absolutely. Yeah. And if yeah. they were potentially going to be co-owners of the Mets together. Um, yeah. But uh, they, we should say that they were engaged and their, their wedding was postponed by the pandemic. And, they never, and then they broke up before they could actually do it. So 2021 also brought some merciful news in that it was also A-Rod's last year as ESPN Sunday Night Baseball Analyst. Uh, the next year, they transitioned him to, to an alternative broadcast with Michael Kay called the K-Rodcast, model after ESPN's success with the Manning cast for Monday Night Football. This was supposed to take advantage of A-Rod's relationship with Kay and be a more casual, friendly chat with guests and interviews during the game. It's really a great way to watch a game if you want to see a lot of awkward laughter. We had a Sunday day game, so Saturday night we had a long night, mm-hmm. and... Uh... He was the ultimate bachelor. A great example of that is you open his fridge. There was nothing there. <laughs> so he says to me, hey, Mr. T said we have no batting practice. We report at 12. Lou Pinella had, I think he was mad at us. Right. And he said, report at 10 a.m. He said, don't you dare wake me up. I'm waking up at 10, 30, 11, then I'm going to go to the ballpark. Make yourself at home and take your butt to the ballpark on your own. At that time, it was taxi, not, not Uber. Right. So I'm hungry. I'm starving in the morning. So I open the fridge. There's nothing there. He does have some cereal. So now I'm eating Lucky Charms, no milk. I get a little orange juice, throw it in the Lucky Charm, and that was my breakfast of champions. And of course, he kicked our bus. That, that's, that's the reason why. <laughs> Is this true, Derek? You didn't, I, I, well, didn't I don't shop? remember all the details. I do remember. <laughs> well, I had like, to eat the cereal with orange juice. Cereal. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> But you can tell them about your fridge back in the day. Yeah, I mean, uh, my fridge still doesn't have much in it, to be quite honest. Yeah. What do you think about the K-Rod cast? Do you watch it? Like, yeah, I mean, I the first month, I, like, watched it every week because I was just so curious. And it was uh-huh. just sort of fascinating. <laughs> um, and now, I mean, I don't really anymore. I mean, I thought it was fine. I don't really know what the project is. Like, yeah, like trying to find like a different dynamic for these two guys people seem to like a lot. It's like caught in this middle ground where it's not announcing the game and it's not a studio show about sports. So what are we doing? Yeah, no, I think it's true. Like, it's just the... It's so different from what the Mannings do, partially because like football and baseball are just different sports. But it's also like because the Mannings are brothers and they're like just watching it the game at home, like just sort of like chilling on their couch. It has a much more casual environment, whereas like Michael Kay is like a broadcaster and he's sort of like the host of the K-Rod cast. And it just feels like I think the guests are good, but it, and it is sort of a better use of A-Rod than the actual main, main uh, broadcast. But it just doesn't quite... Yeah, I think what you said is right. It's like, what, do you, what are we going for here exactly? Like, what exactly is the purpose of this? Has always been somewhat unclear to me. Twenty twenty one was also the year Alex would eventually achieve his dream of becoming an owner. 
just not of a baseball team. He and Mark Lore, an e-commerce guy who had been part of the Mets bidding group, they reached a deal to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Lynx, an NBA and a WNBA team, for $1.5 billion. The deal was weirdly structured, though, requiring a series of payments around $200 million each over two years before they would actually take control of the team from Glenn Taylor. So Rodriguez and Lore's first years as controlling owners is this coming year, the 2023-24 to season. All of this just showed how desperately Alex wanted to be an owner, that he would enter such a weird, expensive deal that reportedly had him scrambling to make these huge cash payments to buy a team in a sport he did not play, in a state he had no particular connection to, 2004 ALDS accepting, to buy a <laughs> franchise that was not particularly glamorous or successful, having won only two playoff series in its 30-year history. But Alex Rodriguez is an owner now, which he's always wanted as part of his legacy. As for his actual legacy as a baseball player, which unlike owning requires actual skill and brings people joy and offers something positive to the world, that legacy is still in doubt. In 2021, he had been retired for five years, and that meant his name appeared on the Hall of Fame ballot for the first time. The voting was released in January 2022, almost exactly nine years after Rodriguez's name had been linked to Biogenesis. And A-Rod, one of the greatest players who ever played the game, got just 34.3% of the vote, less than half of what he needed to get in. His vote total was below guys like Billy Wagner and Gary Sheffield. His percentage was even lower than Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds' had been on their first year on the ballot. 2022 was a pivotal year in baseball for confronting the legacy of steroids. For Bonds and Clemens, it was their final year on the ballot, and both fell off without reaching the 75% threshold they needed. Bonds got stuck at 66% and Clemens at 65%. Meanwhile, David Ortiz, who, remember, also failed a drug test, was elected that year, becoming the first guy ever to fail a PED test voted into the Hall of Fame. Why David Ortiz, but not Bonds or Clemens or A-Rod, who were all better players? No real reason, just vibes. Just illustrating the confused, morally inconsistent nature of the punishments for PEDs. It seems unlikely that Alex will ever make the Hall of Fame, at least through a standard vote. And so his legacy remains in doubt. And there are a number of possible lessons to draw from this. The one A-Rod seems to have taken, and the one many people internalize under capitalism, is that being a worker isn't good enough. You can be one of the greatest players who ever lived, you can win a World Series, you can break records and sign historic contracts, but unless you own the means of production, you will always be at the mercy of those who do. Even with all the hundreds of millions of dollars that he earned, Alex Rodriguez was still subject to the whims and rules of the owners. All that money couldn't keep them from running him out of the league and quashing his legacy and possibly keeping him forever out of the Hall of Fame. So Alex just decided, if you can't beat him, join him. Do whatever it takes to become an owner yourself. Go on TV and sing the praises of cost-cutting GMs. Tell your former union to accept a salary cap. Post your kids and your relationships on Instagram. Buy the Timberwolves, for God's sake. Whatever it takes. Yeah, and I, I really think that A-Rod stands alone here. There have been other players who have become owners, but A-Rod seems sort of like more committed to like the actual control of it, whereas um, the 
like the prior owners, like the Michael Jordan, Derek Jeter, et cetera, um, they had been more like public faces and more interested in like the kind of front office, like leadership sort of point of it. Um, whereas A-Rod really seems to be interested in the the capital rent seeking nature of the of, of owning a team. I mean, we'll see sort of where, you know, I, like where we're, we're wrapping up the A-Rod Chronicles, which is, you know, it's always interesting to do something like this on a person who's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we might revisit the subject. We very well yeah. may revisit the subject as his life goes on. But uh, but I think, you know, we, we've gotten to the end of his, you know, his playing yeah. career. And we'll see, you know, once he buys yeah. a baseball team, we'll have to do a new episode. But yeah, I mean, it's, one thing that seems clear is that I don't think his dream was to own just the Minnesota Timberwolves. Right. I think he wants to keep climbing. And like every other sort of person who's tried to ascend in his way, they typically reach some sort of upper limit. But with him, the remaining question is like, will the Timberwolves become what he wants them to become? Right. Like, will that will get him to where he wants to be? Yeah, yeah. Will, will he his... become an MLB owner too? Will he build an empire that he seems to be dreaming on? And I think the other question, so there's like, yeah, his other question is like, will that redeem him in the eyes of fans and the public? And like, will it salvage the reputation, his reputation as a player, which currently is very, very damaged? We really should understand A-Rod as a unique individual who will kind of never really be replicated because there's nobody in the history of baseball who uh, will span so many kind of like changes and eras and phases of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think he exists in this particular moment in time, right, where he spans like the demographic changes to the game, the free agency explosion in the 90s, the steroid era, the statistical backlash, like all of that is happening, coinciding with the rise and fall of A-Rod's career. And even though he's not necessarily unique in any one aspect of it, you know, he wasn't the only guy to sign a huge contract. He's not the only former player to become an owner. Jeter and Nolan Ryan both did that. He's not the face of sabermetrics the way someone like Kevin Euclid was or David Eckstein was for the backlash to it. Even when it comes to the steroid scandal, that's probably more associated with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. But Alex is the only one at the middle of all of it. It's like one of those like memes where there's like a super Venn diagram with like a million circles. And it's like, you know, it's like the steroid scandal, the free agency boom, like all this stuff. It's like A-Rod's at the center of that. He's like the only player where it all happened to him. Like it all, you know, he's the only one in the middle of it. Yeah. A-Rod may literally join the ownership class, but I think he sort of remains on a tier that's like, just his own and that will be unique to him like forever yeah and i think the tragedy of it is like because of his unique position because of the way all these trends pulled a-rod apart from his fellow players and fellow workers making him seem like such an outlier plus all the quirks of his personality that made it hard for him to fit in it all kept him from ever identifying with his class he always saw himself as an exception, and even now, he thinks that if he climbs the ladder high enough, somehow it'll make up for his mistakes. But the other way of interpreting things, to make it totally explicit, is that workers are doomed unless they work together. You can't beat capitalism as an individual. No matter how special and talented you are, you can be crushed by the bosses. A-Rod is still trying to climb his way out of the hole he's in, and good luck to him, but without class solidarity, he's just going to keep compromising himself and selling out his fellow workers, the very players whose respect he really wants. Yeah. 
as the song says, no force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. Solidarity forever. So chapter nine brings us to the end of the A-Rod Chronicles and the end of Alex Rodriguez's career as a major league baseball player. Uh, To finish his career tallies, Alex finished with 696 home runs, good for fifth all time, and 117.5 wins above replacement, which is... Uh, 16th all time that he actually would have finished a little higher had he not played any games in the 2016 season during which he was worth negative 1.2 wins above replacement. Alex Rodriguez over the course of his career made at least 399 million dollars playing the game of baseball. That's it for the A-Rod Chronicles, at least for now. We want to thank you for listening. Please please share and subscribe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> please share, like, and subscribe. Yeah, yeah. This has been an undrafted production. James and I are the lefty specialists. If you want to hear more from us, go to undrafted.substack.com. This has been written, edited, and produced by lefty specialists. Music by Lonnie Ginsberg. Thanks for listening.